Hello. Yeah, man. Well, uh, trying to clip this thing in. Oh, yeah, first I got to figure out how to undo the button. Oh, well. So, uh, uh, Travis asked me to speak tonight, a couple weeks ago, and really from as soon as I started praying and waiting and listening to the Lord, I felt that he was, he was speaking to me about something about going back to the foundations. And so that's good. I like it when I seek the Lord and then I hear, you know, isn't that a miracle? Uh, and so, but there's, you know, okay, that's a start. And so I continued to seek him. I, I looked back because I, I, I missed when Trenton was speaking a couple of weeks ago because I was with the kids. And so he had, we have a podcast. It's on, uh, I think, Apple Podcasts. Uh, and so I got to go back and listen to that. And as I was doing that, I looked at the, even just the titles of, the last couple months of, of messages here, and there, I think there's a, a theme. There's, there might be overlapping, interwoven themes, but this, I, this idea of foundations, I think, is a theme. A uh, couple months ago, or maybe it was three or four, I'm not sure, but Matthew had spoken. Uh, as I recall, the title was, It's All About Grace and Mercy. And... Um, that's certainly foundational for us. And then uh, Trenton and I shared together on Passover Easter weekend about looking forward to Jesus coming, right? And, um, and then Trenton touched on that again a couple weeks ago. But then there's also this other theme going on, which is certainly foundational, when, when Sue shared a few weeks ago about being expectant. Uh, and then Trenton shared, uh, like I said, and as I was listening to it, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back because when Sue shared, she talked about uh, this metaphor of us offering ourselves as a sacrifice. And it's, it's in, uh, what is it, Romans 12? I think beginning of Romans 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And she drew this comparison with the daily sacrifice in uh, beginning with the tabernacle. Uh, beginning uh, in probably in Exodus, but especially described in Leviticus, how there were, there were two sacrifices a day brought, or two times of sacrifice and and um, there would be a, a burnt offering. I don't know, I don't recall all the specific sacrifices. There was an incense offering. And I think that she is completely right on with drawing that comparison and that there is this, that is a, a metaphor that's woven in the scriptures of us offering our bodies as a, offering ourselves as a sacrifice. And then also our prayers being like the incense that goes up. And it, it says in, uh, in somewhere in Paul's letters, pray continually. You remember reading that? Have you ever thought about what that means? Uh, well, uh, when I was, say, a teenager, I remember thinking about it, and it, I just, 
I can't make sense of that, you know? How can you pray continually? I have to eat, right? Uh, at some point. And, uh, but then when you learn about the sacrificial system, the daily offerings that are offered twice a day is called a continual sacrifice, a continual offering. And so in the, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in uh, chapter 3, the disciples went to the temple at the time of the sacrifice, at the time to join in the prayers. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius was praying at the time of sacrifice in the afternoon, and the angel appeared to him. And so I really genuinely believe that when Paul and others in, in uh, the, the apostles' generation talk, spoke about praying continually, that they were most likely making a reference to this continual sacrifice and how we come before him at regular set times each day. So that was, you know, me reflecting on Sue. I think it's good to, to go back and revisit the different messages that are shared. Uh, I was thinking about Davies has shared this vision that he's had a couple times recently of the water towers. You know, there's these two water towers in town. And uh, he, I think it was when Trenton spoke, because I heard it on the recording, he shared it again before you spoke about seeing this boot, this, I don't know if it was a boot, this foot come out of heaven and kick over the water tower to, to pour out water on the city. And how Davy believes that it's a prophetic sign the water tower is being painted right now because there's this idea of cleansing. And then you cleanse the outs out of the cup, but the Lord cleanses the inside of the cup. So, uh, there are, um, that reminds me of a, um, a passage that I was thinking about as we were listening to the playlist, which is in Mark 7. And because uh, it was actually funny because it was when it, when it got on the loop, when it, got, it started skipping, you know? And I thought, wow, if you're going to have something on loop, this is good, you know? It was right when it was saying, I'm desperate for you. If you're going to get caught in a loop, a thought loop, that'd be a good one to be caught in, right? But uh, I was thinking about that and about how Jesus said in Mark 7, there was this argument over the disciples not washing their hands, which was a, a tradition at the time. And he said in Mark 7, verse 15, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then I thought of this, uh, this thing we learned growing up, you know, garbage in, garbage out, you are what you eat, those kinds of things, but then applied metaphorically to what we allow to come in, our thoughts, what we expose ourselves to, what we meditate on, and what we hear. What's going to come out of us is... Uh, not entirely dictated by what comes in, but it's certainly a very powerful influence. And so by exposing us to, to the scriptures, by like, you know, hearing, find an audio Bible that you like, or, you know, there's all kinds of recordings of the Bible on YouTube and everything else, everywhere else, and um, then we can be planting seeds in our hearts so that what comes out of us is pure and good and clean. Well, uh, 
as everyone was getting situated, I was, I was sharing that the Lord uh, had directed me to go back to the foundations. And I was talking about some of the different uh, messages that have been shared re- in recent weeks. And that there's been this theme, there have been, I feel that there have been many messages that speak to the foundations of our faith. And one of them is, was Sue's message on being expectant. And then another was last week when Michael shared about belief, right? Expectancy, belief. And then even Trenton's message, he focused on uh, what the scriptures say about Jesus' return. But as I was listening to it, he made this powerful statement in the, somewhere in the first half of the message about that part of what it means to be a Christian to be a follower of, of God, of Jesus, is that we have this understanding that he is coming and that he, is, he rewards those who seek him and that he repays those who, you know, have resisted him. And so whatever we have done, whether good or bad, will be accounted for. And, and but that... To live your life based on that truth requires more than just knowing, more than just having read that or heard it. If it's not actually internalized, if it's not deeper, you know, we're not going to make hard choices based on something unless it's really deep inside of us. And so... Uh, I wrote this, the willingness, trying to summarize something I heard in Trenton's message, the willingness to suffer for our testimony is directly linked to our confidence that Jesus is coming and that he will reward each one of us for what he has done, whether good or bad. The willingness to suffer for our testimony is directly linked to our confidence that he is coming, that Jesus is coming, and that God will reward each one for what he's done, whether good or bad. Uh, <clears throat> at the end of our time last week, when Michael had spoken on belief and he had called us to remind ourselves of promises that had been spoken and prophetic words that, had, that we had received and to stir up our faith and belief, he, after we had, a few of us had shared, he added this, this piece about uh, sometimes part of the process of believing a promise is we, we have agreed with it, we have prayed, and then we can kind of let it, we, not kind of, we can let it go. We can release it. Not that we no longer believe it, but we're trusting him. So you can, you can uh, there can be a time when we have prayed and we have confidence that he's heard our prayer, and then we're able to release that. So, We must be people who carry around within us an awareness of the reality and the imminence of God's world. I say God's world, I mean what usually you'll read in the scriptures or people will say is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, and that is what I mean. But I just chose a different phrase because I don't want to, you know, sometimes these phrases that we've heard a bajillion times, we don't hear anymore. <laughs> so uh, we need to be aware at a deep level of the presence of God's world, the coming of his world, the reality of that world, and its imminence. Imminence, it's here and it's coming and it's, uh, 
very real, very tangible, very present. Uh, It's where he lives. It's where his ways are the ways of the land. It's a place of peace, of hope, freedom, love, life without limit. We must carry within ourselves an awareness of the presence and the coming of God's world. When I was in my first year of college, well, it was my first year of college, I went away to school. I lived in Portland at the time, and I went to Idaho to go to college because I was a Nazarene, the son of a Nazarene pastor, and that was the closest Nazarene college. And I'm glad I went. And uh, although I only stayed there one year, it's a long story, I won't get into all that. But that first year was predictably, I suppose, a time of crisis, a time of obviously transition, on top of the normal coming of age growth and my own experience, my family, my birth family was going through a very tumultuous time. And I, I battled, I wrestled, you know, am I going, what do I believe? Am I going to continue in this journey, in this, uh, you know, on this track I was raised as a pastor's son, and, and you don't, at least for me, I didn't, it wasn't much of a question. I mean, I had, I did have experiences with God, real, very real experiences with him throughout my childhood, but in a way, it's like when you're a pastor's wife or a pastor's son or husband, I suppose, then you're, not, you're also kind of have a role in the community, and so there's a different kind of pressure, but then once I was out of the home, I had this freedom to revisit this. Like, is this is this really who I am and who I'm going to continue to be? And I think partly that was prompted just by the time that we live in and the fact that there are so many challenges to uh, our beliefs, to our way of seeing the world. And so I had obviously heard many of those challenges. I went to public school, and I guess you would anyway, but... uh, and so I went through this, I'm a very, in some ways I'm a contemplative, intellectual kind of person, and so I went through this process of reasoning and thinking, and, and, uh, and I considered all the possibilities and all the evidences. So this is, you know, I was 18 years old at the time, and I was thinking about the evidence that we have for what we believe. And I'm sure that Fairly, yeah, I know at some, some point along the way, as in Na- the Nazarene is a Wesleyan tradition like the Methodists and like Asbury. And so uh, I had heard somewhere, some point along the line about Wesley's approach to this question. And so I think that was, back, that was part of my thinking. But I, I landed on these different evidences that we have. And I'm sure that list has evolved since then. But the, the first evidence that we have for the reality of God and of his world is a creation, I think. Uh, we can look all around us and see the, the nature of the world that surrounds us. Uh, the amazing, beautiful, magnificent world around us bears the signature of its maker. We look around us, we see order, 
and we know that he is in control. We see beauty, and we know that the one who made this place is the author of beauty, all that is beautiful, noble, and true. Uh, We look around, we see wonder. We're filled with wonder. We see majesty. We know that he delights in mystery and amazement. We see life everywhere. Everything that he does is full of life. Um, You know, as I continue, like, think about what are the evidences of, that support the things that we believe. And the second one that I come to is his people, the people of God. And that's really now in two groups, the people of Israel, two overlapping groups, the people of Israel and the church. So the people of Israel, as we read through the the Old Testament, this people, starting with Abram, is called out. All of their neighbors are, uh, believe in multiple gods, have a worldview of um, kind of like a cyclical worldview of continuity where there's this, uh, these early, uh, how how do you say, what's the term? This idea that there were these events back at the dawn of time that happened among the gods and that those are replayed in our lives. This is the worldview. It's just everywhere around ancient Israel. And he calls out this people and marks them and distinguishes them. And even though it was a long process of learning to follow him and obey him, they've been certainly been marked ever since. I think that's a huge sign of who he is. The church, Jew and Gentile, uh, born into new life through Jesus' body. The, you know, Jesus tells the, the parable of the mustard, no, of the yeast, the mustard seed too. But the parable of the yeast, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that's sown into a lump of dough and it expands until it fills the whole lump. And, you know, what a perfect picture of his people, you know, how it has, has gone out and even when it's hidden or it's resisted, it continues to grow and there's places all over the world right now that we know this is the case, even places where it's not safe or it's not, uh, yeah, it's not safe to publicly be known as a follower of Jesus. Still, that yeast continues to spread This is a sign of his kingdom, of the reality uh, of his world. The historical event of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. That's the next one. The reality of this event is attested by the willingness of the first generation of his followers to go to their deaths for their testimony as witnesses of these events. Perhaps you've heard that, you know, uh, it's kind of a a logical uh, explanation in apologetics, but I just, I find it so compelling, you know. I don't find a way around that one. And I'm, you know, like I said, I'm an intellectual type of person, a contemplative person, so I I feel like in some ways this message is more, more for me than for anybody else because I look at so many of my family and friends, and they don't have the same struggles with, (laughs) you know, these types of things as I do. But, you know, for somebody is of that nature, like that type of person, this is such a compelling 
such compelling evidence that this generation of, of men and women were willing to lay down their lives. And not just the first generation, but on and on it goes, right? It got even worse in the next one or two generations at certain places. Uh, number four, the testimony of our brothers and sisters of God's work in their lives. And number five is like that, except it's my own experience. My own experience of God's work in my life. So in both of these cases, uh, just remembering, hearing report, hearing Sue's report from her, her trip, uh, Kenya, right? Yeah, and, and uh, we've had, you know, we've had testimonies here, God's miraculous healing, his, uh, just how he changed our own hearts. You know, we can look back, we can remember certain points that may not have been meaningful to someone else, but they were meaningful. So all of, through all of these evidences, you know, I, th- this, this kind of thing is important, but there's a way in which being able to think through all of these reasons is not really the heart of the matter. There's something deeper than that. I think that, so what I felt drawn to share about tonight is similar, is related to this idea of faith and belief, but it's deeper. And that is the idea of trust. And it is, I want to just go ahead and read a psalm. This is Psalm 131. This describes the kind of trust that I'm talking about and that I feel like is is even a deeper thing. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time that we have. Like Travis said, these gatherings have been such a blessing, a delight, a joy, just such an amazement to come and gather together, to be together as your people, to be a special group among those who are called out to be the followers of your son. Thank you, God, for this time. I pray that you will, that you will speak, that your voice will be heard, like was prayed earlier, that your voice will be heard, what you're speaking to each one of us and what you're speaking to us as a group. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I'll read that psalm again. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous, or some translations say too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore.
this is one of the, uh, this first verse, I do not occupy myself with things too wonderful for me. This is one of the uh, verses that I eventually came to that first year of, of college when I was wrestling with, with what, you know, what is the nature of reality, all the deeper questions, you know. You get to a certain point and you realize that your options are belief or insanity, <laughs> I think. You know, trust or just chaos, meaningless. When you get to a certain level with philosophy, with thinking through, trying to understand, that's the point I came to. I realized like it, the only two uh, worldviews that uh, really I felt when, you know, 18-year-old, but seriously, I still feel this way. Like the only two worldviews that I felt like I could settle on were Orthodox Christianity, <laughs> founded on Orthodox, uh, the religion of Israel, or nihilism, meaninglessness. And I had to let go. I had to say, no, there's a point past which I'm not willing to go in my contemplation of the deep things. I do not occupy myself with things too wonderful for me. So today and yesterday, last few days as I was contemplating this, uh, I felt drawn to read uh, a book by uh, Charles Spurgeon I have back here. He has this three-volume Treasury of David in which he goes through each psalm and gives his own reflections on it. And then uh, he, after that, he has little excerpts from many other teachers and scholars and thinkers. It's wonderful. And I, I happened to find it at the Asbury Library on their buck-a-bag sale. So you, sometimes you find some really good stuff in there. And uh, you're just amazed that something hasn't been taken. But then again, you understand, everybody's got, a lot of people have big libraries already. But uh, as I was reading through that, one of the, uh, I'm not sure if it was in that one or, and I think it was a different, a different book, but they pointed out Job 42. And uh, in connection with this phrase, things that are too wonderful for me. And Job 42 is at the end of Job. It's after Job's three friends give all their speeches. Job responds to them more than once. And then there's this other character, uh, speaks as well, and then God answers. And after God answers, well, first of all, some of what, what God says is like, like what I started with creation. Like, look, look around you. Were you there when I stretched out the heavens when the morning stars sang together? Can you tame Leviathan? Can you tame Behemoth? These, whatever kind of creatures these are. Finally, in chapter 42, Job answered the Lord, and he, he quotes back some of what the Lord had said to him and then answers it. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now he's quoting the Lord. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? There is Job's response. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And he's quoting the Lord again. Here and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. 
And Job responds, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And this is like, that's the answer. I mean, we, we get to this point of trying to understand things and we get to the, to the limits of our human capacity to understand. And the only place to go from there and, and retain our humanity is into his arms, into knowing him, into who he is. And so knowing him, um, I want to read a, a little bit from that, from Charles Spurgeon's thoughts. And, uh, wow, what a book. He's talking about, in this case, about the, the metaphor in, in the psalm of the weaned child. What does that mean? Before I read the, the bit from Charles Spurgeon, uh, you know, I have three children, and my wife is a super mom. <laughs> Always has been, and her specialty is babies and infants. And I remember when we had our first boy, Ezekiel, uh, he, there's this this knowing that she had and that it didn't matter who people could tell her things give her advice she knew what those kids needed (laughs) i remember talking with someone else recently about this that there's this idea that floats around that when a baby's crying you just need to let him cry no (laughs) don't do that when a baby's crying it's because they need something right they're not they're not smart enough they're probably i don't know how smart they are but they're not mature enough to think through manipulation. You know, that's not that at that stage, you know. They're not throwing a fit. They need something. And so she was just so amazing with all three of them. Uh, Solon, you know, being premature was, whew. I definitely saw the qualities of my wife during that time. And then I noticed something, though, that once these kids got to a certain age, they were, they had this confidence about them, you know? They were comfortable. They didn't, uh, well, now Solon's been stretching us lately, hasn't he? But as a rule, the first two especially, they didn't, you know, have the same kind of behavior problems that, that you often see. And I, I just made that connection. I was like, oh, okay. Jen was so good about making those children feel secure in those early months, especially in early first couple of years, that that had its effect. You know, she was there for them. She was always there for them when they needed when they needed her, and and so I just started contemplating that this week about this idea of the weaned child. You know, uh, what is different about a weaned child? child who's no longer nursing. I assume we all know what that means. But uh, there is this kind of, you know, calm about a young child once, they're, once they've gone through that transition. 
and how they can be with their mother. It's not like an infant, you know, where they're just always grasping for what they need. There's this settling that happens. Uh, as I was studying that this week, I, I ended up in some child development books <laughs> and was reading about it in there, and, and it, it definitely bears out there's this, this struggle that happens as the, after when they're being weaned, when they're no longer breastfeeding, and, but then after time in the, the normal and healthy progress of development, they settle in. So here's what, uh, what did I say, Charles Spurgeon said. He said, the Easterns, that is those from the Middle East and beyond, the Easterns put off the time of weaning far later than we do, and we may conclude that the process grows none the easier by being postponed. At last, there must be an end to the suckling period, and then a battle begins. The child is denied his comfort, and therefore frets and worries, flies into pets, or sinks into sulks. It is facing its first great sorrow, and it is in sore distress. Yet time brings not only alleviations, but the ending of the conflict. The boy, ere long, is quite content to find his nourishment at the table with his brothers and he feels no lingering wish to return to the breast. He is no longer angry with his mother, but buries his head in that very bosom after which he pined so grievously. He is weaned on his mother rather than from her. At this point, with, he puts on in italics, because he's already mentioned, I believe he has, that uh, in the Hebrew where it says, like a weaned child with its mother, the preposition used there is more typically on its mother, like a weaned child on its mother. And that's such a, like, definitely a, an astute observation, I think, that bears out in my own experience, you know. And uh, he says, to the weaned child, his mother is his comfort, though she has denied him comfort. It is a blessed mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forego the joys which once appeared to be essential and can find our solace in him who denies them to us. So this is, I'll do my best. This is the idea that when we, when we come to the Lord, there can be this season in which, you know, they call it like a honeymoon season, where it's just everything is wonderful, and it's, we come to him, we call to him, and he answers. He answers our prayers so easily, and there's just such joy and delight. And then, um, and then you can come to a time when things are a little different, and, um, and I don't... I don't you know, I believe in the presence of the Holy Spirit. I believe that we can enjoy his presence. But I, I think there's wisdom in this observation that Spurgeon makes and several of the other uh, authors do as well, that, um, yeah, that there's this transition that happens and that we are, that actually by him withdrawing some of that, some of those joys that we're actually able to settle in in a different way in trust as his children.
The infant cries out when he is hungry and his mother feeds him. The weaned child waits patiently and trusts in a different way that he or that she will have food to eat. The child does not know where the food comes from or how its parents will get it for him. She does not concern herself with things too great or too wonderful for her. She trusts her mother and father. So, let me just read a few scriptures that are related to this idea of trust. And then after that, I'm going to ask, uh, Jen has a couple songs that we're going to play. And uh, I want us to, just to get you an idea of where we're headed, I want us to take a moment and just be quiet and listen as the music plays. And um, envision his arms around us as our father holding us, cherishing us, nurturing us. And, uh, yeah, just settle in. Settle into that place of comfort. 1 Peter 5, 6, 7, and 10. You can go ahead and start the instrumental. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. From Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? the disciples came to Jesus saying who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and calling to them a child he put him in the midst of them and said truly I say to you unless you turn and become like children 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. 